do turn with me, though I do apologise in advance that uh, these commandments get worked out throughout the rest of the whole Bible, as we've been seeing. So uh, unlike our usual practice, which is to stay really reasonably tightly uh, in one text, we're going to be able to, we're going to have to really look around some of the rest of the Bible to um, uh, see how it works itself out in the wider witness of Scripture. But we've got to the ninth commandment, which is a very simple one, though maybe I'll read from uh, number five so that we get some flavour of the range of responsibilities to other people. The beginning of the Ten Commandments are primarily focused on our responsibility to God. But then um, from uh, verse 16 it moves on much more to our responsibility to other people. It says, Honour your father and your mother, as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long, and it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. The one we're going to study today. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. And then next week we'll see, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife, you shall not set your desire on your neighbour's house, or land, his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. Let's ask God to help us understand. Our Heavenly Father, for nearly all of us, uh, at least parts of those Ten Commandments have been part of our, our lives since earliest days. And yet, Lord... Uh, We've already seen over these last few weeks that uh, you have much more to teach us about them. We pray, Lord, that this morning you would help us to understand your mind on this commandment and that in understanding it and following you, Lord, we would be more the people you want us to be. Please help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was little, I was taught um, a little rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And I I have to say I found it a great comfort when I was teased in the playground or when we were laughed at um, because we didn't have much money. Reciting it gave me a little bit of extra courage. But it wasn't true. Words hurt. In some ways, actually, words hurt more profoundly than a bone-breaking blow. Because they strike at our heart. They damage relationships. In some cases, they can even lead to physical consequences, such as us being falsely condemned. Words are powerful especially when they're used to demolish someone's reputation. The Bible actually says that our tongues are weapons of mass destruction. Did you know that? James chapter 3, for instance, uh, James says, uh, 
when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example, although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants the whole ship to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The residents of Sydney know about that, don't they? The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and itself is set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been ta- uh, uh, are being tamed and have been tamed by man. But no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. With it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Our tongue, he says, is small, but it has a, has a, has a massive influence, like uh, little bits that control horses or the rudder that, that controls a ship. Uh, our tongue can do terrible damage, like a, one spark can destroy a whole forest. Our tongue is an instrument of terrible hypocrisy, says James. We praise God with it, and in the next breath we curse men. I think it should therefore come as no surprise that the way we use our tongues is the subject of this ninth commandment. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour, it says. Actually, the translation may be a little bit narrow. Literally, it says, you shall not give bad testimony. The rest of the Bible, as we're going to see, I think, I hope, makes it plain that bad speech, bad testimony, can be falsehood, but it may actually just be using the truth in a malicious way, as when people gossip or stir up dissension. As we've looked at uh, most of the commandment, we've spent a considerable time looking at at how it works itself out in wider society. And, uh, uh, but this morning, we're actually not going to do that for this one. I want to focus, actually, on the way this commandment uh, should work itself out in the church, specifically. seems to me this is an area where Christians especially tend to fall down. I think, I think part of the reason for that is that we rightly have high expectations of one another, and we live in close relationship. Those, those things are good, but they mean so easily that we, we get far more disappointed, far more hurt when uh, we meet the normal stresses and strains in relationships. In the wider world, often people just shrug their shoulders and move on. They expected nothing else. But in the church, we cannot move on. We can't just walk away. In the midst of that slightly more intense pain, that family pain sometimes, that there is amongst God's people, so often our tongue gets going. And what was initially just a little spark becomes a raging inferno. And if we believe the gospel as God's people, that is disastrous. 
disastrous, you see, because Jesus Christ is the only hope for this world. Jesus is the only hope for millions of people in this country. Jesus is the only hope for tens of thousands of people in this city. And they will only hear about him through the witness of his people. His people will not be, a, be able to bear witness to him if they do not love one another. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, said Jesus, if you love one another. So we need to take it seriously as God's people. We need to understand what the Bible says about this ninth commandment. And the lives, the eternal destinies of people whom we know, whom we have contact with, hang on whether we put it into practice. Let's look at what the Bible says then. As usual, I've given you a, an overhead so that uh, you, you, can, uh, you can follow it with me because um, we will need to uh, look at various different passages of Scripture. First of all, we're going to look <clears throat> at what the Bible says quite specifically about um, specific accusations that may be made against um, people. The Old Testament had law had a very clear rule about uh, regulating witnesses. One witness was not enough. Deuteronomy, uh, those passages in Deuteronomy 17 and, uh, uh, and 19 make that very clear. At least two witnesses were required before someone could be condemned. This on its own, you see, reduced the chances of false witnesses, of innocent people being condemned. There were certain cases, of course, in which a second witness was very unlikely to appear. The cases of rape, for instance, are quite carefully regulated because uh, rape, by definition, only tends to have one witness. There were principles laid down to determine whether a woman had consented or not. You see, what the Home Secretary is deliberating about now over the law of rape is not a new thing. It's there in the Old Testament. It was also quite possible that two witnesses might lie as well. Two witnesses weren't automatically believed. No, they needed to be uh, cross-examined in order to have their, their evidence tested. Great care, says the Old Testament, is needed when considering any accusation against someone. And the New Testament takes that theme up and applies it to the church. Paul, writing to uh, Timothy, says in uh, 1 Timothy 5, Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Church leaders especially, he says, are in a, are in a vulnerable position. Pastors especially often have to deal with difficult and delicate matters and with unstable people. And sadly, the less stable members of the church or the wider community are all too often uh, uh, find themselves able to convince themselves that they have some significant grievance against a church leader. I've seen good church leaders ruined, actually, 
by one unstable, malicious person. We need to be very careful, says the Bible, about accusations. And uh, on the uh, other hand, there was also a clear rationale for punishing false witnesses in the Old Testament. The punishment was very simple. They would receive the punishment that they were trying to inflict on the other person. Deuteronomy 19, 18 and 19 says, The judges must make a thorough investigation. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. If the crime carried the death sentence in Old Testament Israel, the false witness was put to death. It was that serious. Sometimes, of course, it is just not possible to uh, formally convict and punish a false witness. The Bible actually makes it plain that uh, God himself has a habit of bringing on people the punishment that they deserve, even if no court can do so. Numbers uh, 14, 37 describes the fate of um, the spies. And by the way, virtually all these references are written down in the uh, notes for pastoral groups. If you haven't got them in your hand and you're scribbling them down, if you want to rest, you can pick up the notes for pastoral groups later. Numbers 14, 37 though, describes the, the, the fate of uh, uh, the spies that were sent into the... Uh, into the promised land. Those spies returned um, and then sprouted spreading uh, terrible tales, uh, tales of woe about how difficult it would be to enter the promised land. Uh, and, and finally, the people in fact disobeyed Moses completely and refused to go in. Well, says Numbers 14, in due time God struck those uh, uh, people who brought tales of woe down with plague. Only uh, Joshua and Caleb survived, the truthful spies, the faithful spies. And the New Testament uh, uh, alludes to ways in which God still is able and uh, willing to bring justice on people, even if that justice can't be formally meted out in this world. Make no mistake about it as well. If that justice doesn't come in this life, it does in eternity. I've actually noticed that God has, has his ways. Those who live by the sword died by the sword, said Jesus. Those who live by malicious tongues are often ruined by malicious tongues. What are we to do with specific allegations in the church then? If uh, our, uh, people have grievances. Well, actually, the, church, the New Testament makes it plain that beyond those Old Testament patterns, there is an even more important principle to apply to dealing with grievances. It's the principle of love. Love, says 1 Corinthians 13, that uh, we read just a moment ago, love sometimes demands that we simply overlook 
wrongs. Verse 7 of uh, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love always protects. I think that was the P from Peter's put others first. Love always protects, it says. Actually, that word <coughs> had the sense of, um, of, of waterproofing something to keep the rain out. Love is waterproof. As one old commentator put it, love springs no leaks. No government department is free of leaks these days. Well, it's the same sort of metaphor that the 1 Corinthians 7 is talking about. Christians don't leak. Love demands it. I know it's very hard, isn't it? Someone's done us wrong. We want to uh, accuse them, or at least we want to we want to process it, it with someone. Well, at the very, very least, we need to be very hesitant about that. Perhaps a totally private conversation with a prayer partner or with our spouse is, is not, not wrong. Sometimes we need to do that and have others stand alongside us in supporting us. But every extra person that wrongs are shared with is a greater potential leak. And we can be absolutely sure if we are the sort of people who are uh, constantly putting holes in the boat, then God will judge us very severely. I remember actually talking to a young man once who had discovered in adulthood that his father, when he was very small, had been terribly mistreated on one occasion for, uh, by a famous Christian leader. The mistreatment had been sufficient, actually, to affect the whole, the whole course of the father's life. But this young man, when he was a child, had only ever heard his father speak of that man in the most complimentary terms. And when he challenged his father about it, his father now an old man, the father said that he'd concluded that the leader's conduct on this occasion was, was an aberration, was not fundamental to his character. And so he was just going to overlook it. Though it had profoundly affected his whole life. His son had never heard of it. Love springs no leaks. Love always protects. Sometimes though, as the Old Testament uh, makes very clear, uh, wrongs do need to be dealt with. Matthew 18, the words of Jesus, describes how we are to deal with them. And this is one passage I think we must turn up and have a look at a little bit more at length. So turn with it to me. When I get to it, I'll tell you the page number. 985, Peter Lever tells us.
verses 15 to 20, page 985. The principle here is reconciliation. The first thing, if something has gone wrong between us and another individual, says Jesus, is to, is to um, uh, go and see them yourself. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. This is not vengeance, you see, this is reconciliation. Many things, you see, can be kept just between the two parties concerned. Tensions between brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, would be decimated if we just followed this simple rule. Grievances must never become public unless there has first been uh, effort to deal with them privately, says Jesus. Now perhaps we need to challenge one another on that. If someone is mentioning some wrong done to them by another person, perhaps we need to say to them up front, have you talked to the person about that? I have to say, in, the, in my 10 years as a pastor, the majority of times I have learned that someone has a grievance about me, I've learned it from a third party. It should not be. First then, says Jesus, a quiet conversation. If the quiet conversation doesn't resolve things, he says, we still do not have liberty just to spread our, our grievance abroad, verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. There's that Old Testament principle again that we've already seen. A couple of witnesses have the chance to hear both sides of the argument. Perhaps that will resolve the issue. The next uh, thing, you see, we say to uh, a person uh, with a grievance, if they have spoken one-to-one -one with someone else and they are speaking to us, is we say, well, look, I and so-and-so will come along with you and let's go and talk to the person. That's what we should do next. And my, my experience, again, is that a couple of objective observers very often can clarify the rights and wrongs of a situation very quickly and lead to reconciliation. Doesn't have to be someone special. Doesn't have to be a church leader. Just a couple of other Christians. If the issue is still not resolved, then still, says Jesus, there is no general liberty just to air the matter to everyone and anyone who will listen. No, if it must go farther, it must go to the gathered bodies, body of believers, the, the church, as Jesus calls it, uh, actually coining a relatively new term there. The church must have a chance to adjudicate. If he refuses to listen to, to, to them... Tell it to the church, says Jesus. And then, says Jesus, if that guilty person will not listen to the church, we must assume that they are not Christians. 
He's quite clear on that. No Christian would unrepentantly ignore the wisdom of his gathered brothers and sisters. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector, he says. Of course, at every step, there is the possibility of not going to the next step. You know, the two friends may advise the aggrieved person that it's, it's not a big deal, they just need to forget it. Or the church, when it's gathered, may advise that, 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 that person to, to, to just forget it. Even if the person has not seen their sin. We all have our blind spots, we all have our failures. Love, remember, at every stage covers up. Only actually if there is a significant potential damage to the people of God as a whole does this get pursued right to the end point. Sometimes that needs to happen. But notice at no point, at no point at all, does Jesus say, Anyone has the right to just air their grievance to all and sundry, to anyone who'll listen. He's absolutely clear there is a process that God's people go through to be reconciled, to resolve their differences. And as a, as a church, we're going through a, a phase of change at the moment not least as we prepare to, to meet in the mornings in the ISIS school. I would be amazed if there are not issues that, that, that need resolving. It's always the case, especially when a church is going through for a phase of change. Here is the process that Jesus sets before us. There is no other one that he allows. Well, I spent a lot of time on that. Because I believe it is vitally important, because I believe that the reputation of Christ in East Oxford depends on whether we learn to love each other. And our love depends on whether we learn to deal with our grievances and the niggles that inevitably come with sinful people running it, rubbing up against each other. But there is something in the Bible which is more insidious than the specific accusation. And it is included under this uh, um, heading of false testimony. It is gossip and grumbling. The gossip in the Old Testament is often described as a whisperer. It's all over the place in Proverbs. Proverbs 18, verse 8, for instance, says, The words of the whisperer are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost parts. In other words, the words of gossip is delicious, isn't it? Very appetising. And like a choice morsel, it goes uh, uh, right into our hearts, into our inmost parts and therefore corrupts us at the deepest level. Of course, the Bible is not forbidding private discussion of any sort. Ephesians 4.29 suggests we should speak only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs, 
that it may benefit those who listen. That's the principle. And even that judgment is very difficult sometimes, isn't it? What, is, what will benefit someone? Well, perhaps if we are in doubt, we should stay quiet because whisperers get a pretty bad press in the Bible. It was whisperers who persuaded Israel not to trust God. It was whisperers who told the Israelites in the wilderness that they were better off back in Egypt. It was whisperers who tried to teach, turn the people against Moses. Whisperers are judged very severely by God. Whisperers, when they gain a little more confidence, become what the, what the Bible calls grumblers. They move from whispering now to sending around murmurings amongst God's people. They're not quite public accusations. You just hear the odd word here and there, the odd rumble that something's going on. But they do their destructive work. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10, Paul harks back to Israel's difficult years in the desert when there was much whispering and grumbling. Do not grumble as some of them did, he says, and were killed by the destroying angel. Unrepentant grumblers, says the Bible, do not inherit the kingdom of God. Make no mistake about it. Gossips and grumblers are not always telling lies. Sometimes they are telling truths which ought to have been uh, covered up. More often they are spin doctors, spinning in it everything to uh, fit their distorted picture of the truth. They're very, very difficult to deal with because there isn't a specific accusation being brought out into the open. Just a particular version of the truth. And with that they prod and they poke and they irritate and they grumble and they whisper until everyone feels uncomfortable. There is no smoke without fire, some say. Well, it may be true, but I know that the smallest fires can be persuaded to pour out the most acrid smoke, and whisperers are past masters at doing that. He or she is breaking the ninth commandment every bit as much as the lying witness, standing in the witness box and making an outright accusation. Indeed, they are doing it more maliciously sometimes. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. I wonder whether it is significant that Jesus himself was crucified by the testimony of false witnesses. The breaking of that ninth commandment was at the heart of his false condemnation. And if you read the words of those witnesses, they're not actually outright lies. They are distortions. They are misinterpretations of his words. They are the things that were being uh, rumoured and uh, spoken about around in the streets. They could have been resolved by a simple word with Jesus himself, but of course they didn't bother to do that. 
No, they turned it into a false witness against him. And he died. And we who do that against men and women made in the image of God are in exactly the same category. Thank God for God's forgiveness. Thank God that Jesus himself said about those who stood mocking him, Father, forgive them. Thank God that though we deserve death and condemnation by God for defaming men and women made in his image, Jesus died on that cross, not as a victim, but to save us from our sins. Every single one of us here, myself included, are here as people who need God's forgiveness for false testimony, bad testimony against other people. More than anything else, we need to know God's forgiveness. We need to repent before him. We need the new life that he gives. The new ability to do something about it. We as God's gathered people here need to learn more and more deeply what it means to love one another. And an absolutely key mark of our love is the way we speak. By this shall all men know, you're my disciples, that you love one another. Let's pray. Time of quiet for every single one of us to ask for God's forgiveness. Perhaps to ask God whether there is a person who sometime soon we need to go and see personally. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would cleanse our lips, that you would forgive us for the many ways in which we fall short of your high demands for our life, that you would help us to forgive others as well, to cover up and cover up and cover up and not hold uh, sins against others. 
to help us to resolve our differences and be reconciled in the wise way that you have ordained. Lord, we pray that as once again we've seen the dark side of our own hearts, you would send us to Christ afresh for forgiveness, for renewal, for hope. We ask it in his name. Amen. There's a story um, Rust. So anyone who has any wisdom will store up their treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Where's your treasure? What's the most precious thing to you? What are you laboring and toiling in this world for? Your house? Your family? Your reputation? Your work? They will go. The lasting significance of our lives is the souls that we touch is the work that we do out of reverence for God, is the things that we do that Jesus looks upon and smiles and prepares to say, well done. Because everything else will go. Jesus says, with the writer to Ecclesiastes, we must think. We must develop wisdom. But it must be wisdom which sees eternity. Love the Lord your God, he says, with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Think carefully, critically about how you're leading your, your life. And then, he says, you will be able to think and it will not lead you to despair. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we pray, give us wisdom. There is no point in embracing folly, Lord. But we need your wisdom. Wisdom which sees eternity. So that we can uh, not live in despair.
pour out your wisdom on us. Renew our minds, we pray. Help us to see that we need you. We ask it in Jesus' name.